You're listening to a special series of Between Two Flags for UNA Canada's Green Corps program. Through regular podcasts, Green Corps will invite a wide range of experts to discuss complex environmental, economic, and social issues. Live tweet as you listen with hashtag Between Two Flags. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Between Two Flags. Uh, Between Two Flags is UNA Canada's weekly podcast that brings a variety of Canadian experts onto the show to discuss issues of sustainability uh, and largely decarbonizing the Canadian economy. Today, we are very honored to have Beatrice Allen. She is the Director of Partnerships and Head of International Relations at the Chantier de l'Economie Sociale. The Chantier de l'Economie Sociale has a long tradition of engaging in international dialogue, both to learn from best practices and to share experiences that have made Quebec an internationally recognized ecosystem that enables the development of the social economy. In recent years, Ms. Selene has been particularly interested in ways and strategies that facilitate dialogue between stakeholders from different sectors and countries in order to strengthen the development of the social economy. From 2011 to 2016, she helped create and coordinate the RELIZE, an international transfer and liaison center on public policies for the social economy. More recently, she directed the organization of the Global Social Economy Forum, an international event co-organized by the City of Montreal and the Chantier de l'Economie Sociale, focusing on collaborations between local governments and actors of the social economy which took place in September 2016 and gathered more than 1,500 people from 62 countries. Ms. Elaine holds a bachelor's degree in economics and political science and a master's degree in international relations. Beatrice, very welcome to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. It's yeah, it's great really. To be here. Thank you. Yeah, it's uh, quite exciting, and uh, we uh, are very pleased to have you all. Quickly introduce uh, our listeners uh, to what the organization does, and then maybe I'll. I'll have you put a little bit more of that into your own words and uh, maybe a little bit about um, the, the path you've taken to uh, arrive at where you are now. So the Chantier de l'Economie Sociale is a hub to discuss, promote, and develop the social economy, meaning enterprises that are collect- collectively controlled and contribute to ensuring the ongoing economic, social, and cultural vitality of communities. The Chantier regroups sectoral and territorial networks of social economy enterprises along with organizations and networks that support their development. Its members are committed to building a plural economy that produces returns for the community and protects the common good in function of communities' needs and aspirations. By enabling collaboration between social economy stakeholders and their partners in Quebec, promoting the social economy as a vector of social and economic change, creating conditions and tools that to facilitate the consolidation, experimentation, and development of new niches, and participating in the construction of alliances with others that support this development model. The Chantier contributes to the democratization of the economy and the emergence of a development model based on the values of solidarity, equity, and transparency. That's a wonderful intro, um, and certainly I can see the, the distinct and direct alignment with Canada Green Corps. I'm wondering, um, maybe you want to put the work of the organization in your own words just for our listeners and maybe uh, put uh, sort of that personal touch on it. Yeah, 
Um, well, maybe we can start off by defining what the social economy is, because it's not always very well known, even though in reality there are a lot of social economy organizations in Quebec and I would say all over the world. Mm. Uh, the social economy is defined in Quebec. There's a framework law that recognizes what it is and recognizes the importance that it's played for the economic, social, environmental, cultural development of, of Quebec. Um, and social economy organizations are collective, so that means uh, legally they're usually co-ops or enterprising nonprofits or nonprofits basically mm -hmm. or mutuals. Um, and so they're collectively uh, owned, but they're also democratically managed. So uh, compared to, for example, um, a private organization where we can be several uh, partners, but if I have all of the money, I make all the decisions. Right. Um, it's one person, one vote. And they're autonomous from the state. So um, even if they do contracts with a, a local or a national government, um, the, the management of the organization is, is autonomous. The state has no say in it. Mm. Um, and usually and the, the, they have uh, an economic activity, um, but they also are, the, the objective is not to maximize profits, but to fulfill uh, a mandate, which is either to serve members or a community. So their economic activity is a way, ensuring economic viability is a way of ensuring the mission, mm. the viability of the mission long term. Um, and so in Quebec, for example, it's more than 10% of GDP. Um, our so social economy enterprises are account, account for more than 10% of GDP, which is quite impressive if you look at it. I mean, that means more than mining and construction and aeronautical all put together. Wow. Um, but at the same time, when you make those kinds of, when you say those kinds of statistics, it's reducing a bit their impact to only their their economic volume, you know, how much they're selling. Mm -hmm. And often these organizations have multiple impacts, have also social impacts and environmental impacts that are not so easily quantifiable, but are just as important. Sure. Um, and elsewhere in the world, they'll be called different names. They'll be called co-ops or land trusts, or um, there's a, you know, a lot of different varieties that these come under. But um, all over the world and from the beginning of time, communities have come together to manage local resources, either, you know, fields, access to a waterway, um, certain kinds of infrastructures, factories, etc. Um, and, and ensure that the, the wealth is collectively redistributed equitably, but also that the decisions are taken locally and to ensure that there's local impact. Hmm. Uh, and basically to do things different, to do things in ways that correspond to the needs or the aspirations of that community. Um, no, that's... Yeah, so although the term social economy is not always very well known internationally, there's actually a UN task force um, on the social and solidarity economy because more and more we're recognizing that these organizations exist and that they're very important to ensure decent work, mm -hmm. um, um, agricultural food safety and food sovereignty, mm -hmm. um, and a series of other things that are quite fundamental for human development. Oh, absolutely, and uh, and thank you for that. I, um, you know, some of the reading that I've done about uh, cooperatives, uh, mainly in Latin America and Spain, um, particularly, I guess. And, uh, yeah, and of course in other places, uh, in other countries and juris jurisdictions as well. But in your mind, um, you know, 10% of GDP, GDP is, uh, is, is significant. And why do you think there's been this, uh, this interest or this success in, in Quebec lately? Um, well, first I would say that the success in Quebec is actually, co-ops have existed in Quebec for a long time. If you think um, the first um, 
firemen co-ops or uh, Desjardins, which is the biggest credit, it's a mm-hmm. credit union mm-hmm. in Quebec, and the biggest financial institutions have been around since the 19th century or earliest 20th century. Um, I think there's an increasing recognition in Quebec, as in many other places in the world, that these organizations are somewhat different from what we're, you know, taught of the classic business yeah. and taught at school, yeah. um, but that they are they're vital for community development and they're vital all the more vital in this day and age where first of all governments have less resources so mm-hmm. if they're going to be supporting organizations these are organizations that their their survival rates are actually much higher than private enterprise right. because they're too important to fail basically yeah. um, <laughs> they don't delocate they are, you can't outsource, you know, people, the community who comes together, a worker co-op's not going to outsource those jobs to another country. Right. Um, and they're also the better way, and, and Eleanor Armstrong um, got a, won a Nobel Prize for demonstrating that, for example, the best way to manage local resources and environmental resources is by uh, the closest community. So if I live beside a forest, I have a very vital interest in ensuring that that forest is developed sustainably and according to my needs and interests so neither cordoning it off and preserving it in a way that won't ensure my economic development but nor exploiting it and you know cutting everything down and Mm -hmm. shipping off the trees and the profits elsewhere Mm -hmm. so have ensuring a mix of of uses in according to the community yeah and, and and her observation on that was uh was incredible and i remember the amount of uh you know the emphasis that she placed on uh just the trust and the relationships within cooperatives and and people who similarly share a resource you know such as a forest or or a fishery or something like that and the ability for you know as those relationships develop um you know, if you see uh, a person X Y Z walking out of the lake with twenty fish, you know there's that there's that social pressure and and actually uh, it's kind of sort of a social contract that you're like, well, do you really need those twenty fish right now, or you know what what is being left for other people? Is that a sustainable harvest? Um, and I think yeah, I mean that Absolutely. that aspect of tragedy of the commons is is really a huge issue, obviously, right now. So I think that's one issue. That's sort of one way of solving or addressing that issue is is through co-ops and having everyone um, invested in the, in the company, per se. I think it's also very informative, and here I speak as someone who studied um, economics, that we're taught about the tragedy of the commons, yeah. and we're sort of taught like that's the default problem that we'll face, because that's certainly, anyways, what I was taught in economics, mm. when, in fact, I don't think... I think that's one model, and if you go around privatizing everything because that's you know what you're told will happen otherwise, mm-hmm. then you think that, that that's the default solution. Whereas, in fact, if you look at historically and what's happened all over the world, most of the time, communities do have social cohesion right. and an interest in uh, collective. You know, there's things that are individual, but there's things that are of the community and have value mm-hmm. as a community space. And, and the whole notion of commons is... is very important to understand that um and and i think that those practices of managing collectively whether that was enshrined in a formal organizations with a collective governance and you know whole framework or or sort of a social pact have exist all over the place and so it's more formally getting the recognition that these exist and are actually very effective and the most effective way of managing resources is important in winning a little bit the war of ideas but i think on the 
on the ground, those that way of, of operating has existed hmm. forever. That, that's that's fascinating. I guess you know, with with the international dialogue and and learning from the best practices, I guess just the uh, and positioning Quebec as a, a leader in these areas. Where do you see uh, the movement, uh, if I may call it that, uh, in Quebec going in the next three to five years? What what are you looking forward to in the future with uh, with developing more co-ops and and spreading this type of model across the province and, and mm-hmm. around the world? Well, one of the things that has defined Quebec um, internationally is the capacity to speak beyond uh, sectors, mostly. Mm. Um, uh, You see these kinds of organizations all over the world, but oftentimes there'll be a regroupment of either agricultural co-ops, and on the other side they're facing, um, you know, uh, forest co-ops, and on the Mm -hmm. other side they're facing manufacturing co-ops, and they're all sort of in competition with each other. Um, or at least faced with the government. Um, in Quebec, there's been, and the Chantier de l'économie sociale, that's the heart of its mission, is to bring together all of these stakeholders of the social economy and organizations and networks that do, you know, housing, um, worker integration, uh, parent-run daycares, etc. all of these different ways in which communities organize to uh, ensure vital services and products for their community and manage them differently, right. and say, okay, all together... What do we need? What are our common priorities? What are tools that can serve all of us, whether that's financial tools or public policy or facilitating commercialization or exchanging best practices, et cetera? Um, And that has really distinguished uh, Quebec and I think has contributed to advancing both the the ecosystems or the tools and and policies that have supported the development of new social economy enterprises and also the uh, expansion of ones that are already there, the the, the strengthening of them. Um, And I think that what we're seeing internationally, we're we're at a very um, interesting point where there's a couple of places all over the world. Well, there's always been places doing this. Um, Right now in Barcelona, there's a lot of very interesting things going on around platform cooperativism Mm -hmm. um, and uh, a city that is very engaged in a context of economic crisis in saying the solution is not austerity, the solution is more solidarity and we need to be rooting in our communities and giving our communities the the tools to to answer their own challenges. Um, And so they're doing very interesting things. The city of Seoul has a whole approach around collective governance and and the city again has been very proactive and, and doing lots of interesting things. And then, you know, in terms of international institutions, there's the the UN task force, there's the OECD that's been writing a lot about um, social inequalities and the social economy as an answer to that. Um, And so on the one hand, there's a broad, uh, a level of international exchange on a broad level that's, I think, um, unprecedented because we're more and more using the same language and recognizing that the tools and lessons in one place can apply to another. And on the other hand, there are a couple of places, I think, that are, are quite advanced and that are engaging in more um, specific conversations about, okay, well, can you tell me more about what you're doing to, for example, foster collective youth entrepreneurship right. or uh, revitalize neighborhoods? What are the factors of, you know, what are the ingredients that explain the success of these um, of this neighborhood? How did it come about? What can we use and adapt to our own context from that? And so um, there are more and more of those international exchanges going on in there at a quite a high level and that we're, it's not just knowing that it's possible, but really digging into 
the terms of the financing, the kinds of tools and support that were granted, the kinds of um, actors and stakeholders that coalesced around that, whether it's labor unions or the women's movement or environmental actors or et cetera, um, how those came about, with what resources, how much time it took, et cetera. So it's really um, very concrete and, and very encouraging. That's that's really interesting. I, I mean, I've been fascinated with co-ops um, for some time now. The model is so attractive for a number of reasons. I guess just while we're on this topic, a quick follow-up is uh, for our listeners, if they were interested in, in uh, accessing more information about co-ops, um, where would are there some places just off the top of your mind websites or different organizations um of course your own um where someone could go yeah. to learn more about cooperative than the model um so just a, a point of, of clarification really in, in uh, quebec we talk about the social economy because it's more than just co i mean cooperatives mm. are one tool and they're a very yeah. good tool yeah. um but they're also enterprising nonprofits in certain cases um having a, a nonprofit organization allows for the uh, engages a variety of actors that may not be necessarily users or producers but that support the mission of that organization okay. so for example worker integration enterprises um which will train people who are sort of far from the labor market for a variety of, of social reasons um, through a, a two-year um, process will hire them will give them a job but will also provide on-job training meaning and then a bunch of other social services so that after two years those people will reintegrate the labor market mm. that's not really a co-op those people are not permanent members of the organization but the organization the mission that it has is to facilitate social reintegration or an enterprise that produces you know tables and chairs but provides permanent employment for handicapped people right, right. again is contributing to you know uh, integration um and and providing not only its economic benefits for the community and, and for that person who's not at home on welfare but also you know human dignity and all of the other things that Absolutely. are more difficultly okay. quantifiable so it's really and i think if we if we get to the challenge to um define things define these organizations in ways that are clear and easy to understand but at the same time not narrow it down to one kind of organization because there's so many innovative things going on on the terror you know in communities to find with whatever resources they have and whatever jurisdictional um, you know, limits or opportunities mm -hmm. that exist, they'll put together an organization that can do that, that can engage and, and um, mobilize the community that will be answerable to that community. And I think that's very important compared to a lot of sort of more individual answers, yeah. um, that, that it's accountable. Um, and that that are uh, aiming ultimately their mission is, is to have a social impact. Okay, I guess. And no, and so sorry, to, but to then to, and to go back to your initial question <laughs> okay, about where sure, people yeah. find out more about that, um, if you go there's, so there's the UN task force. If you get Google UN social solidarity economy task force, mm -hmm. that should be one of the first that comes up. Um, the Chantier has an English language uh, website. Um, I would say most places in the world do. Uh, RIPES, the R-I-P-E-S-S dot org, is the intercontinental network for the promotion of the social and solidarity economy. Okay. And they have links to all of the different continental networks and information about what's going on. Okay. No, that's fantastic. Um, 
Uh, thank you for that, Rose. I always try and just provide uh, sort of some opportunities for self-directed learning with the participants and uh, and our other listeners. Um, how would you, uh, as of course, the focus of of Green Corps is uh, is environmental sustainability writ large, and um, certainly we have. Um, I've just returned from Montreal and Halifax, uh, visiting various employers uh, and participants, and just really quite inspiring to see the amazing work that uh, the employers are are doing, uh, not and very much related to uh, the social economy and, and in Halifax as well. But, you know, with regards to the social economy in Quebec, what, what challenges are, are you facing um, as an organization moving forward? And what challenges do you see, um, or, or, or I guess, how could the government uh, assist or open doors or facilitate the process, as well as just the private sector as well? Where do you see the connections? That's a lot of different, very yeah, good questions. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think for the social economy, the, the environmental question, first of all, there's sort of two aspects to that. One are organizations that are very much uh, intentionally working to have an environmental impact. Mm-hmm. So either improving, um, you know, helping communities manage environmental resources or helping them do so more efficiently. So if you look at, for example, I don't know, wind co-ops or um, recycling and reusing uh, computer material or et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, and, then on, and so then they'll have specific challenges to, to that sector and certainly legislation, for example. So we know that um, energy co- clean energy co-ops are, have developed all over the world mm-hmm. um, and, and are quite interesting. And it's interesting to tell consumers that they have an option of buying into specifically clean energy. Right. In Quebec, we have hydroelectricity, which is pretty clean compared to other sure. options. Yeah. Um, but there's a whole debate about are they doing enough to diversify the, the sources of clean energy and um, providing a, a buy-in rate um, is, is essential to enable those kinds of organizations, for example, uh, wind energy or sun energy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't know whether that'll happen. Um, so then on you... the other side, there are organizations that work to have a social mission. So, for example, you know, creating positions for handicapped people or whatever. Um, and then the challenge is, can we can we enable them? Can we give them the tools to improve their their environmental impact? And oftentimes, especially in very small organizations, it's hard because they're trying already struggling to make ends meet and to um, ensure their social mission. You know, the social mission is so important that they'll keep going even though mm-hmm. it's you know times are hard. And so then to ask them on top of it to be extra conscientious and take extra steps to improve their environmental impact is also a challenge. Sure. Um, and so how can we give them the tools and the information to, uh, to make that transition better and to, and to um, think about improving all of the, to being better in all of their practices, you know, whether yeah, that's yeah. Um, social inclusion, environmental impact, etc. Um, and then you had a lot of other questions. Yeah, sorry. Uh, those were a little bit jumbled together, I guess. But I think, you know, more or less you you touched on a few of the answers there. And um, that's that's perfectly fine. If maybe something will come back and we can go back to it. Um, you, just, okay. you just mentioned the, the buy-in rate um, yep. from uh, solar and, and wind power, mm-hmm. essentially like a feed-in tariff, like a, a higher subsidized yep. rate from the government. Is that what it... I, 
I don't know much about the status of that in Quebec. Could would you be able to highlight just sort of a a few key points about uh, the status of feed-in tariffs or or the government's Honestly, plans? Honestly, it's on, on the one hand, it's not my my field of expertise, yeah. but it's also my understanding that that is not in any way in the cards okay. in Quebec, okay. unfortunately, um, because I do think that there's a question at some point of of scale of you know if you're getting down to the smaller and smaller rivers. Maybe there's other alternatives that are that are worthwhile exploring, and um, but yeah, I think the situation in Quebec, in that sense, is very particular, and, right. and we're up against. I mean, it's a whole debate about this question about hydroelectricity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we and we were just discussing that in the office as well, actually. Uh, uh, Julie Pierre and was uh, uh, had a few ideas, and and uh, as we did around the office, but I just I just mentioned. Uh, I did some work with the feed-in tariffs in Germany and Spain, and certainly we see, um, you know, we see both governments on the hook for uh, significant amounts of money uh, for the electricity that they're buying back. Uh, sometimes upwards of fifty euro cents per kilowatt hour, which is uh, unimaginable uh, price for electricity here in Canada. I know. Um, so you know, there's just arguments, I guess, debates on whether or not they invested too heavily, uh, too early, and um, you know, if they had waited, mm-hmm. if they had waited a decade to let the prices fall, would it have been a better investment? Or you know, maybe the counter to that is, would the prices have fallen if Germany hadn't invested so heavily in 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 refining the manufacturing process and improving the efficiencies? So, um, right. I think I think it also comes down to what the you know it's the opportunity cost and what the alternatives are. Yeah, exactly. So I think because Quebec has a relatively uh, clean and quite cheap source of power mm-hmm. now, we're energy exporters and the price of energy is relatively low in Quebec mm-hmm. um, compared to elsewhere. The incentive to first of all improve uh, to reduce. Um, usage mm-hmm. to, to provide uh, modulated tariffs, for example, or, or reward people who are going to reduce their usage during peak hours yeah. is less. Yeah. Um, and the the impetus to improve the sources of energy that are being generated and even to generate more energy are yeah. less than in other countries where, you know, the alternative is nuclear or coal or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Hmm, that's interesting. I... Um uh, no, that, and I guess uh, I don't want to derail the conversation into renewable energy, yeah. is it? but that's perfectly fine. Um, I have a question uh, from one of our Green Corps participants, uh, Burgess. Um, he actually has two questions. One, the second question was if time was permitting. So, um, mm-hmm. if you don't mind, I'll just read his question, and then uh, if you would make a, a few comments, that would be great. Um, sure. So he says, uh, firstly, he says, I would like to apologize for not asking in French, but currently my French language skills are insufficient for me to ask the question fluently. Um, and so he says, Marilyn Waring, arguably the founder of feminist economic, economics, has long noted that GDP does not take the social economy as well as many traditional uh, women's social roles and occupations into account. Given Chantier de l'Economie Sociale's goals of enhancing the social economy, in the face of governmental focus on metrics like GDP, how do we globally support mainstreaming of the social economy, reducing governmental uh, sexist or biased metrics like GDP uh, and balancing the economic focus? Mm-hmm. That's a very good question. Um, so a couple of clarifications again. I think the social economy or solidarity economy um, is 
first of all, sometimes conceived of a little bit differently in different places or even for different people. Mm-hmm. Um, in Quebec, increasingly, there's a consensus around the the definition that's provided by the framework law. So we're talking about organizations which do have uh, economic activity. Um, and so if you look at, and they're working now on providing a statistical portrait, which is convenient because it means we can see whether it's increasing or decreasing. So increasing the number of people working there, increasing the uh, vol- you know, the economic output of this sector, et cetera, and being able to argue in function of real numbers, but mm-hmm. obviously a challenge because you're reducing this, the sector and it's important to those numbers when it has much more impact. So that's just in terms of defining what the social economy is. We're getting closer to being able to quantify certain things, mm-hmm. all the while knowing that that quantification will necessarily not take into account fundamentally important things like human dignity and like right. equity and et cetera, right. um, social cohesion, um, et cetera. Um, with regards to the question about gender equality and the whole um, question of, of, for example, the care economy um, that's not quantified in, in the GDP, obviously the GDP is a, is a flawed index um and you know if there's an environmental disaster gdp goes up so that's great because we have to pay for the cleanup but while everything's clean and everyone's enjoying it we're not paying for you're not quantifying it so it doesn't exist um in terms of things like the care economy or in terms of volunteering for example or peer-to-peer you know Mm -hmm. off non-monetary forms of exchange it's there's a little bit of a touchy Uh, there's a fine line between, on the one hand, recognizing that that's there and and valuing those contributions and and allowing, for example, for people who have children and their children are sick to go home and work from home and not penalizing them and Mm -hmm. um, appreciating the work of volunteers, for example, that you know, in certain cases, allow organizations to stay afloat or to maximize the impact that they want to have. And at the same time, to not condone uh, organizations that will exist because they run off unpaid interns coming in and out. And so basically, you know, cheap labor that's not being adequately paid or recognized. Mm. So as an organization that's having an economic activity, um, we also have to recognize the, the the rights of workers to be paid and recognized adequately for that work. Yeah. And then at the same time, as an organization that mobilizes the community, we also have to value the contrib- the voluntary contribution of members of that community adequately. So there's a a fine line to a tightrope to walk on there, and I don't think that there's an an easy way to. To codify that or to provide rules on that, I think it's just something that we all have to be very attentive to. Yeah, I think so too. I I agree, and I think uh, I think Burgess will be uh, pleased with that answer. Do you, I guess we have time for his second answer as well, or second mm-hmm. question. Um, it's a little bit shorter, and um, he says, "Is uh, just what are your general thoughts about uh, the degrowth movement or decroissance?" and how it may facilitate a growth in the social economy and its place in a long-term sustainable world. Mm-hmm. I think that the, the degrowth movement is, again, very interesting. Um, I think there's a little bit of a communications challenge to explain that we're not meaning less of things, we're meaning more of a lot of other things. You know, exactly, less yeah. T-shirts produced means more clean water and more... Um, 
time to do other things. You know, yeah. there's, a, there's yeah. a whole issue around that. I certainly think that the current um, model that we're, most people are operating amongst has demonstrated its its flaws: the financial crisis, environmental crisis, the food crisis, the you know all of these things. Um, I think more and more people are are seeing that we're up against a wall and that we need sure. to do things differently. The challenge is to um, provide them with alternatives and at the same time not to go for, I think there's a lot, what we're seeing increasingly social washing the same way that we've been seeing greenwashing mm-hmm. of sort of easy solutions of don't worry, I'll save the world. Um, buy a shoe, I'll give a shoe free. Mm-hmm. And then we don't think about, we're just providing, we're dumping more cheap, shoes and reducing the markets elsewhere and mm-hmm. you know so it's not really an answer to that specific question i think certainly the degrowth perspective is one that's very interesting and should be taken into account in the way we thinking of, we think about how we want to develop our communities i certainly don't think that there's one solution that'll fit every community and again the you know the question of like forest users do you want to just have tourism activities there do you want to preserve it entirely and have it be wild do you want to have some logging but in a way that's you know sustainable do you want to have whatever the uses every community i i, I really think it's important that has the, the right to choose for themselves within conditions that really allow them to have a choice absolutely um but i think the more we have conceptual tools about for example the importance or the value of limiting um of, of, of not aiming maximized profits or the notions of common good or the commons yeah. um, may expands our realm of, of what we think we should be doing or could be doing and yeah. also to have governance models that are explicitly that are able to handle those things to say we can decide collectively and we can either structure as a as a multi-stakeholder co-op or as a user co-op or as an association which aims to protect, promote, and develop this forest, for example. And look, it's been done elsewhere. In Nepal, I think it's like two-thirds of people belong to a forest user group. Or, right. you know, in this country, there's this model that's been developed, etc. So it's possible, and here's how we can do it. And then the community itself will decide how they want to use those resources. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. And a, a previous uh, professor of mine at the University of Waterloo, uh, uh, Simran Singh, he spent... Uh, I believe he spent two years with uh, a group in sort of northern India, just um, essentially studying. He's a sociologist studying how how they've worked together <clears throat> for so long to maintain the forest in the condition that it's in. Um, mm-hmm. And there was, I believe, uh, more or less his doctoral work was uh, trying to trying to build that evidence, build that case because uh, the government did want to change sort of the. Um, the user laws and agreements and open it up and um, I can't recall exactly the specifics but uh, really fascinating work and uh, to get you know, his experience was extraordinary there but um, and then I guess even back to degrowth just if 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 it's a new concept to some of our listeners or if they haven't heard about it I mean first of all we need to find a more uh, a more attractive name in uh, in English for it because um, I think 
whenever there's a political campaign, I mean, uh, both elections in uh, both recent elections in Canada and, and the U.S. Uh, growth is is dominant. Uh, there's actually there's no mention <clears throat> at all uh, that the GDP is uh, that our economy is big enough. And I think that's you know that's one of the main tenets of of the degrowth movement is just you know how large can you grow the economy on a, on a finite planet with finite resources. And if anyone is interested in reading more, just off the top of my head, there, Peter Victor uh, is a professor at uh, York. Uh, Nicole Foss is a previous professor at uh, University of Ottawa who, who now lives abroad. But both have done some really interesting work on, on degrowth and just the, over, and the idea. Um, uh, Herman Daly is the uh, kind of the, the father, I guess some would say, of steady state economics, where even just getting the economy to a point where we don't feel it has to grow anymore. I mean, I don't think it's really the size of the pie that's the issue anymore. It's almost uh, the redistribution of that pie and, and who's, you know, who is really being served. So anyway. Um, but also what we're counting in the pie. I yeah, absolutely. I yeah. stopped using growth and I use development because yeah. I think everyone, there is certainly space for improving living conditions and quality of life and well-being or however you want to you know when we beat in in uh, ecuador but but well-being at some point when you already there's a decreasing returns to buying that extra t-shirt when you already yes. buy 50 when you already own 50 so right. maybe that's going to the theater or spending more time with your friends and so maybe work less hours and have more time to do something else oh juliet shore you also know? does yeah. great work on that yes um mm-hmm. and exactly i mean it's essentially I think the misconception is that, uh, you know, uh, critics that I read sort of, they're talking about, okay, well, you want us to go back, you know, to some sort of less technologically advanced society where, you know, people aren't as, as happy. But, I mean, there's been so many studies that prove over a certain level of income. I mean, people's happiness does not increase proportionately at all and sometimes even decreases. And it's not... Uh, it's you know it, maybe it does involve more less things, but much more time with family, more times with friend, more times, more time volunteering in your community and pursuing hobbies that um, you know can add value to your community and the economy in other ways that, as we've mentioned, may not be quantifiable. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah, I think it's uh, it's a really interesting, uh, really interesting topic. Um, so I guess just. Gearing to wrap up, uh, Beatrice, um, how did you how did you get here? How has your path led you to this spot? And um, I guess while you're maybe just sort of explaining that path, are there any lessons that you could share with uh, with our Green Corps participants across the country who are relatively early in their careers? Uh, the average age uh, for our Green Corps participants is is 26, and so um, for some, this is their uh, first uh, first position in the labor market, kind of uh, first rung of the ladder. Others, it might be their second or third professional job, but still relatively early on in their careers. And one of the aspects of the program that we're trying to uh, gear up uh, in the future is is professional development training and skills training. And even if you had some insights on, you know, what skills. Uh, various employers are are generally looking for in young employees uh, just to give them maybe some mm-hmm. direction on what they might uh, pursue in the next year or two of their own careers hmm. um, how I got here i the I studied in uh, I, I, my I did my undergraduate in economics and in political science mm-hmm. certainly because I had a sense that things were not right or at least not maybe not not right but I thought that's really weird there's very 
big differences that I can see, and it seems to me that it's unfair that there should be. And the first place I went, I did an internship right after my degree in Chiapas, in the southern Mexico, in mm. a couple of different native um, communities. And I got there, and I realized, my first day I was like, okay, well, tech, you know, page one of my economic textbook says don't plant only one crop like coffee. I mean, gee, we all know that. <laughs> and after about three months, I realized I know nothing. Mm. I have no tools. I'm not an engineer, so I don't, I can't, you know, build the water irrigation system. I'm not a, a you know, I, I don't have the agricultural tools to really say what could grow better in these altitudes and have a diverse um, source of, of food. Mm. Um, I'm not a commercial specialist that I can, and so I just, and then also, more fundamentally, who am I as a, as a Canadian to come into a community and who's, you know, relatively well-off middle-class gone to university, come to tell a bunch of people how they should or shouldn't be developing their life. So that was really fundamental for me in rethinking what my contribution could be. Um, and I think, and then for a while I thought, oh, I should have studied engineering or I should have studied law or I should have studied something, you know, where you can actually do something very concrete. Um, And I think now where I am, I I recognize that my my background and including my studies are important because it does provide a frame for how things work. Mm. Um, And I think the understanding that communities are accountable for themselves and that when you come out of university, it's normal to be like, you know, you're, you're young, you're idealistic, and you've got a bunch of technical knowledge, and you think, like, I want to go out and fix the world. <laughs> There's a lot of reality, and people have been working hard at that for a long time. Yeah. So your contribution, your ideas are welcome, but there also needs to be some, some respect for local realities. And, for, um, and so I think I've come full circle in that, and I, I'm very happy to be where I am and, and to be working to enable, basically, diverse diversity and local empowerment Um, and i would say anyone coming out and with a concern about you know for example environmental issues certainly there's a diversity of ways in which you can address that and there is the engineering thing and there is the legal perspective and there is the agricultural perspective and all of those skills and especially the new ways of of touching on those and new technology are, are really interesting and important and so it's figuring out what level, where, which community you want to invest in, and how, and putting those tools at disposal and exchange in exchange for other kinds of knowledge that come from the field and from people who are working in those fields day to day. That's fantastic advice. I think that uh, that self awareness um, is very, very valuable. And it's interesting that um, you know you discovered that. Uh, in Mexico, of course, we have our International Development and Diplomacy Internship Program, which sends uh, talented young Canadians abroad to UN agencies for six-month uh, placements. And you know, certainly, that international experience is is extremely valuable. Um, there's really no um, replacement. But what we've been saying uh, around the office as well for a number of years is. Um, you know, you certainly, for those who may be going abroad, is not uh, their first choice. There's so many ways to get a variety of experiences within Canada. I mean, we are so lucky to have uh, the diversity, uh, especially in our major urban centers, um, where you can uh, where you can interact with different groups, different worldviews, um, different perspectives to really challenge your own beliefs uh, and uh, your 
I guess just beliefs for lack of a better word. But um, I think that's, it sounds like quite a transformative experience for you in Mexico. Yeah, but I think your point is really, I think that could have come about anywhere, as you say, different communities. Certainly, I live now in Montreal. Um, different neighborhoods in Montreal have very different dynamics and historic and histories and sure. ways in which the community has come together and issues that that community wants to address and communities that on paper might be very similar have tackled very different issues or have tackled mm. them very differently mm. um and then it's always fascinating uh, indeed to go to uh, you know toronto vancouver or halifax to say nothing of kujuak or uh, Thunder Bay or, you know, smaller sure. Moussini, smaller yeah. communities that have very different issues. And, and the issue of youth employment is one of how do we keep youth in our community and keep that community vital? Or how do we ensure local services? Yeah. So there, there are very different, um, again, realities. And it, it's always, to my mind, fascinating to see how those have developed and how they've been answered. And so there's all there's that exchange of knowledge and expertise with a respect for local reality that needs to be to operate, that it's a two-way street, basically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that's really uh, fantastic, uh, Beatrice. Um, thanks so much. Uh, did you have any final comments for uh, the participants or, or myself or just any in general? I don't think so. It was, it was uh, great to have this chat, though. Yeah, it's okay. Good, it's good to think about broader issues. Sometimes we're in our nitty-gritty, but <laughs> it's interesting, and I'm happy to know that there's a cohorts of, of young people. Um, obviously, I think more and more people are interested in these issues, but also exchanging and thinking about the broader issues as they're working on very concrete projects. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more, and I know... Uh, I guess I, I will take the liberty of speaking for them, but uh, certainly the Green Corps participants that I met uh, last week, um, I think they would be very interested in, in learning more about uh, the social economy and, and, and the work of uh, Chantier. So uh, without further ado, I would just like to say thank you so much for being on the show. Um, it would be great to uh, have you back on the show maybe in uh, a few months or even next year where we have grand uh, hopes for Green Corps and looking forward to 2018, but certainly appreciate your time now and and, uh, and kind of shedding some light on, on the work of your organization in, in Montreal and across Quebec. So thank you very much. Thank you. Super. I was happy to do it. From another Between Two Flags podcast, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Bye.